is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we've got a bunch of good stuff to talk about. You're kidding. We really got some good stuff? I'm as surprised as you are. <laughs> and some of it will even be good news to people who didn't get a flu shot. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner, and I got my flu shot. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we have more medical news, despite the fact neither of us knows a wit about medicine, mm. including a possible impact of wine on the flu. Listeners ask about the proper wine service and why it matters. We have the history of the corkscrew, and as usual, we'll make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and Paul, you know how I love poking around to find medical news about wine. And that scares both the wine industry and the medical industry. Yeah, and anybody who listens to us, at least it should. (laughs) Still, I've got some great recent studies, and one of them is about wine may help fight off the flu. Oh, are you kidding me? Okay, first of all, before we get into this, are you a doctor? I you are I, not Rick. I can barely you, find a doctor. You are not a doctor. I am not. I a doctor. am not a doctor. You are Anybody listening not. to us, don't take medical medical advice from us. We're idiots. And by the way, don't take financial advice either. But but <laughs> certainly do not take. I, medical I think advice. you think about taking wine advice. Really, from that's us. that's a risk there too. Right. <laughs> okay. But what no do you got? no medical. Okay. So remember, these are studies we are just reporting. And we should also throw in that there's also been a lot of studies that these are all about moderate drinking. Right. Volume doesn't make them better, just just so you know. Okay. So one of them is that you always hear that, you know, and this is sort of, it is the urban legend or your grandmother told you that drinking made your cold and your flu worse. And it always seems like it makes sense. It makes your bottle flu worse. It may, well, that's true. It yeah. does make that worse. Okay. Um, but there have been a couple of studies lately that, that have shown that maybe that's not necessarily true. One is a little bit older. This is from Carnegie Mellon. It was done in 1993. Yeah. But it got cited because of this more recent one. And they followed people who smoked, people who smoked and drank, people who just drank, and people who did nothing at all. And had no fun at all. And had no fun at all. Right. And no surprise, the smokers were the most susceptible to colds and flu. Boy, there's a shocker. I know. <laughs> Especially, here's even more shocking, upper respiratory illness. <laughs> Where would that come from, right? I can't imagine. But here's the kind of cool stuff if you are a wine drinker. The people who smoked and drank moderately got sick about the same amount as a normal amount is what the the researcher said, which was the same as the teetotalers. Uh And the people who were moderate drinkers got sick less. Of course they did. Because they're happy. Because they have no kids at home, and the kids aren't bringing <laughs> home the sickness, so they're staying healthy. Probably true, right? That's if you got kids right. at home, you can't. You, you probably smoke to keep calming the nerves. <laughs> or and, drink. Yeah, that's probably uh. right. Then there was a more recent study in Spain specifically about the flu. So this was an interesting one of those longitudinal studies, as they say, where they, 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 they follow people. Right. Um, right. And so this was 4,272 university faculty members and staff members at five different universities. And to see how drinking affected the flu. And people who drank beer and spirits in moderation, beer and spirits in moderation, yeah. got an equal number as pe- of the flu, equal many cases of the flu as people who drank no alcohol. Okay. But, dear wine drinker fans of ours, yes, it's true. People who drank two glasses of red wine a day got sick far less, as 60% less than anyone else, including people who didn't drink. That is so cool. So forget an apple a day. No, nope. yep. it's a Cabernet a yep. day. Uh, there you go. Yeah, or Pinot. It could be whatever you like. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, I think I'm going with Cabernet. Yeah, I think right. you, you know, gotta, it does you know, seem like that would be the big powerful. That's right. You want to yeah. be, um, yeah. yeah. So there Good. you go. Good. Okay, There's so your... we drink wine and we get our flu shot and we live forever. Yeah, well, do what I do. Just take your wine with breakfast and you move on. And that's yeah. right. And yeah. one glass, good for the whole day. <laughs> That's right. 
Yes, nothing like vitamin pills and wine. Um, all right, uh, this... I hear that uh, Pinot matches beautifully with Flintstones vitamins. So. <laughs> yes, oh yeah. We need the red ones. The little red Flintstones. Little they they red go red really ones. well, yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, what else you got in okay, your magical so, bag of studies Well, here? this was a, uh, a very recent study. It was just published in the Annals of Internal Medicine just in the last couple months. And again, something that you stay up late at night reading. Well, actually what I do when I'm when I'm having my breakfast bowl of cereal and my Cabernet, I, I, I read the Annals of Internal Medicine. <laughs> this was a study about diabetes, uh, but diabetes from the Ben-Gurion University researchers. This is in Israel. And they, okay. they recruited 224 people who had type 2 diabetes, yeah. ages 45 to 75, so adults. They drank five ounces, a regular glass of wine, either white or red wine or mineral water, each of them, five ounces, okay. with dinner every day. And they all ate a Mediterranean diet. I mean, it's Israel. What else are they going to do, right? right? They're in the Mediterranean. They're in the middle of the yeah. Mediterranean, as it were. And anybody who doesn't know, by the way, that means like, you know, low, it's relatively lots of fresh fish and uh, fruit. I'll get it out. Fresh vegetables, fruit, fish, grains. Olive oil. Olive oil, nuts. Wine. And and wine. And wine, right. No calorie limit on them, no volume limits, just whatever. Yeah. And, While you're eating fish and vegetables, I mean, how many calories? You, your stomach explodes before you can overdo <laughs> well, the calories. It could be that. Oh, well, the nuts could drive it up. <laughs> uh, so drinking a glass of red wine, not white, by the way, but the red every day appeared to improve cardiac health and cholesterol management. And after two years... Red wine drinkers increased their cholesterol by approximately ten percent. Good. Yeah. So, and it was Did not. Did they specify whether they should drink the red wine at breakfast or dinner? Um, well, if they, since it was a Mediterranean, they were probably drinking at dinner. Lunch. This was not Rick's house. Um, they're drinking at lunch and then a siesta. Well, so here's something that was good, though. This is another one of those myth busters. Uh, a study found sleep quality in both wine groups improved, especially right after lunch. Well, especially right after lunch. That's true. That, that midday nap was, was great. Yeah. Uh, but also that there were generally no adverse effects on wine and, and things like blood pressure or liver. They, they did liver function tests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, but here's the thing. Both red, white, and, red and white improved glucose control. Through the wine. Whites were only effective. The whites are actually most effective on people who metabolize alcohol slowly, which means the people get more drunk. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, but red was, for everybody, it actually increased uh, glucose control. So red wine was actually considered, at the, uh, by that study, to be pretty effective uh, in battling diabetes, or at least know, slowing diabetes. I, I should diabetes. bring in this book for you, Rick, by um, the wine merchant Nicolas in France. That he, he, I think he published this back in the 20s or the 30s, and it's called Mon Docteur Le Vin, My Doctor Wine. And it is, in fact, a list of all the things that people complain about in their everyday life, physical problems, and how a different kind of wine is the solution to every single one of those. It's beautifully illustrated by Raoul Dufy. I like the sound. And it's really a lot of fun. There's even for those having liver problems, there's an appropriate wine to drink for that. Well, too. and not only that, um, as I should, should mention that Mr. Nicolas is not a doctor either. Yes. Well, we have also found that the more other people drink, I get smarter. Well, and better looking. That's true. So there's something. You need all the help you can uh, get. Dear Lord, I do. All right. We have one more. <laughs> okay. We got another study. Yes. This was, I, I would do the joke and say, I, I, I can't remember this one, but it was because it was about memory. Uh, it's about and Alzheimer's. Yeah. That's right. Good. Danish scientists said moderate drinking could help lower the risk of death by dementia and Alzheimer's by 77%. This was published <clears throat> just recently. Does that mean that they're going to die from some other reason before? Says the, the, the risk of health lowers yes. the risk of death by dementia. Does that mean that they're going to probably drunk driving? Okay. <laughs> All right, that's not even funny, but no, but uh, it is funny the way they worded, yes. isn't it? Yeah, okay. yes. Uh, in any okay. case, 
yes, at least the dementia is not going to get them. Right. Published in the online medical journal BMJ Open, which is a London-based one of those. Uh, it's it's one of peer those reviewed. magazines that you read all. Lots the time. of people. Yes, I, I when I'm sitting there with my breakfast bowl and breakfast my of wine. champions. So this is three-year study by the University of Southern Denmark at o- Southern Denmark Odense. Okay. And it's part of the Danish Alzheimer's Intervention Study. And apparently in Denmark they are studying this. They should. They can't remember why. <laughs> uh, that's really bad. Oh, uh, jeez, Louise. <laughs> All right, Louise. so here's what they did. Yeah. They say they found that a pint of beer or a medium glass of wine a day could help protect against early death from Alzheimer's. They followed 321 people who had early stage Alzheimer's. Okay. And they found that those who drank moderately, a glass or two, a pint or two, had lower death rates than those who teetotaled or drank less. Mm. And they said that there was a lot more to learn from the study. In fact, they thought that it might be because they didn't give them the wine. They said, just drink your normal drink. So who knows? Um, But they asked them to. But what they did do was that they figured that the drinkers were going to the pubs. Uh, so they think that it may have been some combination of social interaction yep. and, and yep. now when you and I drink, most people don't want to hang around us. Well, you know, it's interesting when my dad in the last year of his life when he was on hospice care, he was staying in a in a convalescent hospital and he wasn't convalescing, he was on hospice care. Mm. But I used to go over and see him every night for dinner and I had we had these little little Gerber baby food jars from when the kids were little. And whatever we were drinking that night for dinner, I'd fill up a little two or three ounce baby food jar and sneaking over to my dad. He took great delight in the fact that we were smuggling smuggling in liquor for him. And he loved playing the game. I'd pour him the glass and he'd say, what do we got here? And I said, well, why don't you take a guess? And he'd do the little blind taste. He'd never get it, but it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And he loved having the wine and I'm sure it made his life better for those last few months and that's all that matters. All right, at the risk of being serious for a moment, that's what one of the great things about wine is, is that it, it, it can be this sort of great social lubricator, not just by drinking and getting drunk, but just by, because it's something to talk about. Yeah. You know, yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. Right. Well, we yep. will have plenty of people who have lots to talk about, and they're going to be asking us questions, so we will be answering those when we come back. Good. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Next up, we are taking questions. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it's time to take questions from listeners. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul. Rick and Paul Wine, excuse me, and and look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe for free, just one little click. If you're new to us and you want to know uh, what qualifies us to be answering questions or reporting medical studies. I got my flu shot. See? Um, See? So I know something. Do, uh, I know enough to get my flu shot. Yeah, and he also knows enough to be a respected industry pro. He answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches at Napa Valley College, the Coloring Institute of America, around the world, and occasionally even on a cruise. It's true. And Rick has written New York best New York Times best-selling uh, book, as well as a longtime journalist, wine commentator on Capital Public Radio, and occasionally people actually ask him for advice about wine, be they wineries, restaurants. It's hard to imagine. I know. I tell him to get a flu shot. <laughs> Good uh, advice. Yeah. Good advice. So our first question comes from Chris in Davis, and and what I liked about this question, this is we we get this sort of question in some form or another a lot. Yes. He says, "Why do I have to quote learn about wine?" I can't get someone to pour me a glass without feeling like I'm in school. I stop being in having fun mode and start thinking I should be taking more notes for the test. You just drink <laughs> beer. I guess you're supposed to ascertain wine. That's you know that's a great isn't that a great question? Yes. Doesn't that speak volumes to the jerks that are serving poor Chris wine? Exactly. You know what's the first 
job of any server in a restaurant to make sure the customer's having a good time. Not to give them a quiz? Did you have a good time in your high school chemistry class? Uh, when, we, when we broke out the wine, I did. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hey, the teacher yeah, never where saw Where is it with these guys who think, and, you know, the the funny thing is, I don't know if you've seen the new the television show about the guys who are trying to become master sommeliers, but when they start lecturing the diners, they fail. I've seen that. You don't get I've to be a that. master sommelier well, if you it, lecture diners. It's but funny that you ask that because our next question is is related to that entirely, but you're you're so you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and, and it's this notion... I mean, what a, what kind of mo- business model is it for an industry where that their customer needs to get educated before they can buy their product? Right. right. I mean, it's crazy. Right. Well, how much? Yeah, I mean, the irony is that. And what are they talking about when they educate you? They're talking about how this wine is made, right? Now, often I, yes. L- let me ask you a question, Rick. How many people know how Coca Cola is made? Well, they if they grow on Coca Cola. There are three people in the world who know how Coca-Cola is made, and yet they sell six trillion bottles a year. It's amazing that we, when we sell wine, figure out that we have to explain everything from what kind of dirt the stuff grows in to what kind of barrels the stuff was aged in. And you know what? They still sell Coca-Cola. So maybe we should learn something from those guys. I'm a little disappointed. No Coca-Cola grows. No Coca-Cola grows. But you know what they do have at Coca-Cola, which I love, is they have a vice president of happiness. There you go. Because I bet he drinks wine. <laughs> I bet he drinks Coca Cola at least on the job. Well, yeah. But their whole point is that's what they're selling. Yeah, they're selling the opportunity to enjoy yourself. Yeah. Why yeah. shouldn't we be selling that at wine instead of telling people that you know if you really understood your geography you'd understand that the west side of Paso Robles is much cooler than the east side of Paso Robles and shoot me. Just right, shoot me right, right then. Actually, right. no. What I'd prefer, if you're going to shoot somebody, shoot the guy who's talking yeah, to me about go. that right. stuff. Yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah, that's the guy to shoot. So, Chris, here's the thing. You're, you're so absolutely right. And, you are right. And just and ignore them. It reminds me of a great story about Joe Heights. Heights Cellars, who was, who was a great winemaker, made one of the most famous wines in the early Napa Valley, the Heights Martha's Vineyard. Yes, absolutely one of the founding figures in Napa Valley. Consistently one of the great wines in Napa. And he had a tendency when he disagreed with somebody who was in his tasting room and they would go on and on and they'd start telling him about the wine. He would turn to them and he would say, shut the hell up. (laughs) At least he was gentle about it. Chris, I think that's your approach (laughs) to this guy. The guy comes over, you say you want a glass of Pinot and he starts telling you what the Pinot is and you just hold up your hand and say, shut the hell up and bring me the glass of Pinot. (laughs) There you go. I think you're on your way. But do not feel like you need to know anything. Just drink what you like and have fun with it. Absolutely. Stay in having fun mode. All right. So this this uh, so Jenny Kim in Modesto asks a question about okay. the show that you were that you oh, were talking yeah, about that, that finished just not yeah, long yeah, yeah. ago. She says I was watching a wine show and it dawned on me why do I care about what they called precision wine service? It doesn't look like fun for the customer. Can't they just be helpful and nice? Well, there's two parts of that. And it's a little bit like when you sit down in a nice restaurant and they bring you all those forks and knives and everything. If you know what's... They, they never bring me a knife. Well... <laughs> they just give me a large, soft spoon. <laughs> a wooden spoon. Yeah. And, a, and your mother shakes one over your <laughs> head right. if you're making any trouble. That's right. The whole point of that is the theory is all of that has a reason. It all makes your experience easier. Except when it doesn't. Well... But the ritual does if you just kind of sit back and allow yourself to enjoy it. If they make it. 
You'd, if they don't do to 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 Jenny what they do to Chris, well, which but, is make him feel like it's an education. Well, yeah, but th- that's not part of Precision Wine Service. Precision Wine Service is you always do it this way. You always pour this way, and and you always open the bottle this way. And you, th- there's a system to it all, which means that ideally people, once they get used to it, should feel really comfortable. And, oh, I mean, I've been in restaurants where I literally had to reach over to the server and say, would you like me to help you get the cork out of that bottle? Because you look like you're having trouble. Well, then there's that. But I mean, that's what Je- what Jenny is talking about, and, and I watched that show, and the show made wine look so joyless, oh, so boy, does absolutely it ever. joyless. Does and, it ever? And yeah. it's, it, that would, is the question that is, is, would you want to have dinner with any of those people? No, no. absolutely not. And no. and I'm I'm sure they're not having any fun either, you know. And yeah. it, but it, that is such a tiny sliver of, of the wine world. And you know, there's a this is the song about this show about these people studying to be master psalms, and this is yet before the point where. They have learned what Master Psalms know, which is that wine is supposed to be joyful. <laughs> so <laughs> right. They hadn't quite got to that part <laughs> yet. But yeah. it, it is and but I'm gonna argue that if your server is 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 as Jenny asks, helpful and nice, and your server manages to get the cork out and get the wine poured, I don't care what order, I don't care the direction, I don't I don't care that 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 there was a dribble on the on the table, which was is always considered a sin. Yeah, I understand all that, but there's a right way to do it. Sure, and you know, um, but I sure that, if you're I in think... a casual restaurant. But do I want the waiter to come out with his carrying four glasses by sticking a finger in each one of the bowl of the glasses, putting them on the table? That's casual. You, so That's... you you were at that table that I was serving. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason they do most of this stuff, well, and I... it's primarily to give the diner a clean, pure experience with the wine. Right, and and that's, that's a but that's legitimate... sort of the key goal. too, because the key is it shouldn't feel like it's precision wine service. It no, should just that's feel right. like you're just getting served. You're should just, just feel like there's a right. right way to do things, and I'm doing it this way, and we're all going to have a wonderful time because of it. Right. So to answer your question, Jenny, you shouldn't have to care too much about it. And if you notice the service, whether it's too good, quote unquote, or bad, they're both the, they're both the same wrong thing. But I will tell you that I, I, it reminds me of a great line. Um, that um, someone said about uh, great orchestration in a in a musical score. If you have to talk about it, it wasn't done right. It should just seem normal and natural. Right. If well, that's you exactly get right. the impression that what you're doing here is seeing some sort of complicated religious ritual, that's not precision wine service. That's someone making an idiot out of themselves. Right. And sp- it should be very smooth. It should be very easy. And its entire purpose is to make you just relax because the scariest Wine service stories I can tell are all about when somebody didn't know precision wine service, took the wire cage off the bubbly bottle, started waving the bubbly around with nothing on top of the cork. Everybody at the table, they lean the bottle one way. Everybody on that side of the table starts slinking down into the chairs. They lean the bottle. Everybody's... I mean, you just, those are things you shouldn't do. So get it right, and the table can relax and have a good time. Well, and you don't want it to feel like a religious service. Since they take out the incense, you know that's bad. All right. (laughs) We have another follow-up on that subject. Oh, boy. Um, This is from Eric Powell in Boise, and he says, Can I ask the server not to go all women than all men? Seems by now we should be past that sort of thing. Wow, Eric. You're totally right, Eric. I don't care what Paul says. You are totally totally involved, except that the person who asked to ask has to be one of the women at the table i don't think so i think that i think that at either person can say you say you can start with jenny kim over there and just keep going 
But I know what you mean because then it makes it look like the guy saying, "Give me my wine." Give me my wine. Yeah, I yeah. don't want to wait. I don't want to wait but, behind the ladies. But I, I agree. I, I, it's one of the things that has always riled me a little bit about it. That uh, if well, we are, a if we insecure. are, if we are truly equal, then everybody should be treated truly equal. Although I will say that Rick does open the door occasionally for women. I well, I, I you know what I do? I actually I open every bottle of bubbly for my wife. And and to be fair, he opens the door for me too. So. It's true. Well, and the, the only reason I open the bottles of bubbly for my wife is so that she'll still talk to me. That's right. It's really not it, a sexist it is, thing. It is, Eric. It is a good question, but I'm of the opinion when you don't know the people at the table, I think it's best for one of the women at the table to say, "We'd just like you to go ahead and pour." Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, cool question. Well, yeah, though. yeah, that is a good question. Yeah. yeah. We say, what would that do to precision wine service by a master sommelier if the if one of the young ladies first to serve just, said, "Oh, could you just pour everyone?" Especially if it was the young lady who ordered the bottle. I want to see that. I want to see that on the next a lame show about people studying. A millennial for wine. person orders the gets the list, orders the bottle. A young female millennial and says, "And could you <clears> just pour it around the table?" Yeah, I want to see the guy go no. <laughs> All right. Yeah, because the rule the rule is what she asks for, she gets. That's right. Well, it works for me. Yeah. That's how, that's how I stay married. All right. Uh, we can't keep doing those jokes. Uh, <laughs> in fact, so we are leaving the Your questions for now. Your wife doesn't find them funny at all. She does so. not. Uh, that is it for questions. We will have more later on in the show. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul. Wine. And coming right up, some really bad wine writing from people who may or may not know Precision Wine Service. We'll be right back. (laughs) You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Oh, yeah, I'm dancing again, I'm dancing again, which means we have something really horrible for you, which is really horrible wine writing. Just like Rick's really horrible dancing. That's true. So the word I've chosen this week, persuasive. This is a persuasive wine. I yeah, always feel like I that. should. I always feel like I should hold the glass up to my ear and see what sweet nothings it is actually whispering to me. Yeah. What does it mean? The wine see is that persuasive a lot too. Do I, you? I, I have yeah. no idea what that means. Mm-mm. It's persuasive, it though, is, which means it's persuading me to drink it. Well, it doesn't have to work hard on that case, does it? <laughs> Maybe it wants the wine service to not be sexist. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I'd, Let's I'd, avoid persuasive wine. I'd like wines to see the, the persuasive wine argue with one of those guys from, <laughs> that's the, right. from the TV see if he show. couldn't change yeah, his mind. That's right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what well, do you got? You've got, got a long one. I do have kind of a long one from it's from it's from a blogger and this is one of the ones that um, this is a blogger blogs a lot, and this is you, we see this kind of thing all the time. And you know, this is it's that so many folks that write about wine don't really know how to tell stories or or, or how to write a good sentence, but mostly don't have to tell stories. So they just start at the beginning, but they also write about themselves. So this was somebody talking about a winery. Right. I'm always determined to find producers I've never visited. In fact, I strive to spend the bulk of my time in wine regions to experience new things and places. I have my favorites, and I circle back when time permits, but I realize the next spot I hit for the first time might be something new. How many times does he say I? Right, right. And you know what? We don't, care. we don't care. We don't care about any of that. Right. Tell me about right. the winery. Right. right. Are you visiting somewhere? Right. It's just a little glimpse into your soul, because you know what? You're not telling us much right. there. And that's, this, is, this is not just blog. I mean, this is like a Yelp review, but it goes, and it goes on. So it was with that philosophy. Philosophy in mind <clears throat> that I set about to visit the name winery removed so we don't get sued. A producer I knew by name, but not much else. If it sits on 300 gorgeous acres in Calistoga, it goes on and on. 
So I think this is a drinking game, and every time he says I, you're supposed to drink a, a sip of this wine. Yeah, yeah. You finish the bottle in seconds. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's the kind of thing that is just it's just horrific. And you know, it's. Uh, um, uh, oh, read the last part. It's really good. The uh, uh, well at, at their estate property. Uh, it's, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I don't. I I can't do. That. I just I can't make our people go through that. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we will. We might bring this back for another time. <laughs> yeah, the, you're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes. We will write back with the second half of the show. Stay with us. You're listening to the Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and you know what? We just can't let it go. No, I'm we sorry. Do this. That writing was so bad, and we had it. We rushed <laughs> through it. So I'm. Let me go back and read that last paragraph that Paul so rightfully is disgusted by. <laughs> Here it is. While at the estate property, this is the member. This is the blogger who. Uh, I, 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 and and I'm. Man, this is there's so many writers. This guy just happens to be a blogger, but there's magazine writers that do this too. While at the estate property, I toured the grounds and tasted to the current leases with the owner herself. Apparently, after spending the apparent after spending the first minute with the owner is the unbridled passion the owner has for the property and for making excellent wines from the estate and beyond. My thoughts on the wines follow. You know what? When have you ever met the owner of a winery who had unbridled had bridled passion? Who had bridled bridled passion. their passion? Maybe yeah. they rode horses. Yeah. Then they would have bridled yes. passion. That was so. A, it's a cliche. B, it's a cliche in words. B, it's a cliche in thought. C, it said nothing. So this was this is the owner has unbridled passion. We because we have we have bridled our passion for this writing. <laughs> we didn't read you the paragraphs in between, which are long and boring. And and this is this is the thing that and so. On another front, you know, we talk about like bad wine writing. People think that this is what they're supposed Here's to do. Here's the worst part: is remember Chris? This is exactly yes. what that guy is talking to him about when he's sitting there at the table wishing he could just drink a damn glass of Pinot yeah. Noir. Chris, you don't like this guy. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm just saying. All right, we don't like this guy either. All right, what do we, we got? got? More to do, boys. Hit it. There we go. Those are our trumpet men. Yes, they know indeed. what they're doing, and it means it's time for some history. Our you want to start? You know what? I'm going to suggest you start this one, and then I'm going to I'm going to add a little element to it at the end here. Right, Is that all right? Because you want to talk about corkscrews. For I do some want to talk about corkscrews. I like corkscrews. Yeah. So here's uh, some of your best friends are corkscrews. Yeah. We you know we, we were talking about it's true. <laughs> um, we were talking about wine service, and the key to wine service is a cork. The corkscrew itself, quite literally, the key. The it is exactly exactly right. So the uh, we're trying. To, I was trying to find. I decided when is the earliest cork corkscrew reference I could find. Right. And and the history books seem to point to 1680 when they used these things that they called steel worms. Right. And what they were were they were just they were like they were a version of the things they used to clean out gun barrels. Right. So it was a wooden handle. And then a straight piece of metal about an inch long, and then beyond that was a curved piece of metal like a cor- like a screw. A helix, a helix as it were, as if it you was. took your biology oh, class. I thought that was a, a math thing, but yeah. in any case. So this was—remember, you know, for a very long time, corkscrews weren't needed because there weren't corks in there bottles because there weren't bottles. bottles. Bottles were the early 1600s, later 1600s yeah. were— Well, bottles more... were used to serve wine, but not right. to store it. Exactly right. They, so yeah. people would buy them in the barrels, pour it into the bottles, and they would right. jam stuff in there. And, and you remember what we call the guy in the house who used to go down in the stately home and take the wine out of the barrel and put it into the bottle for dinner? The guy who goes down to the stately— No. They call him the bottler, which is where we get the word— Butler. Ah, 
The butler did it. The butler. So these early steel worms or bottle screws, as they called them, were actually used just to get stuck corks because they just jammed pieces of cork into right. to keep the bottle. Right. But and you know was and by the middle 1700s, however, they had learned how to it make was an molds. industry. Right. Yeah. So they had mo- m- classes yeah, yeah. in industry. So then these things started to change. And the Reverend Samuel Henshaw, you don't need to take notes, in Oxford, That's England, a good thing. <laughs> received the world's first patent for a corkscrew in 1795. And he collaborated with a prominent manufacturer in Birmingham and they brought it to and manufactured. And it was the same tool this wood handle, the screw that goes straight down. Yep. But what he had was different. We had a wooden disc about halfway down before right. the screw part started. So that was to, in essence, one, it couldn't go too far down, and right. two, it would actually make the cork move as he screwed, as he screwed it in to help get it out. Yep. Yep. In 1882— are you? By the way, I just need to clarify. Are you going to go through every patent for corkscrews? Because there are hundreds. No, I'm only going through three. Oh, okay. Just okay. the, just by the, the way, biggies. I, I used to help Brother Timothy with his corkscrew oh, collection. Oh, yeah. Hundreds, no, so thousands of corkscrews. Anybody that doesn't know what Paul's what talking about, fun. Brother Timothy, the, the, the august head of Christian Brothers Winery— For many, many years— has and that's not the Color Institute of America building, and they have his corkscrew collection, and yes. it is really something to see. Yep. And my favorite are these what they call the mechanicals, where they used to invent all these different kinds of leverage and different yeah. devices. We're not, we're not going through those. We're just okay. going through two, two okay. actually three, three quickies. So in 1882 was the was when the the one that we know the, the best is that, that pocket knife style. Then it was called the waiter's friend or a butler's friend or a wine key, as you right. said. And and important because it folded up and you could put it in your pocket and it wouldn't tear your pants apart. That's true. And, and uh, Carl F.A. Wenke, by the way, in case you you know want to give it credit. Well, I keep that in mind. In 1888 came the double levered one. You know, that's the one yes. that lots of people have where yes. you stick it in you, and you screw it down and there's yep. two levers My and you pull it up. My dad used one of those for 40 yep. years. It made its way uh, to the U.S. around 1930. That was the A1 Healy double levers was called. And then the really other really interesting one, there's all those rabbits and stuff like that. But this is a really good was in 1979. Yep. The screw Herbert pool. Allen. Yep. And Herbert Allen, and he was an aerospace and oil industry engineer. Yes. But his is the one where you just put it in, you keep turning in one direction. Right. And goes it down. slowly sucks the cork right back it out It goes down, and it goes up. It's magic. Yes. It's a perfectly formed helix. It's Teflon-coated. He was an engineer. He yeah. really approached it in and a cool way. And it is way. so elegant, by the way. It's yep. in the Museum of Modern Art's permanent collection. There you go. So— so my little bit of history was that when they first started hammering those corks into the ends of bottles, they weren't actually sure they were going to make a very good seal. So they had a tendency to improve the seal by dipping the neck of each bottle into a hot tub of wax. So and this is the tip upside down. Upside down. Taking a risk, it'll be a little bit of a seal. And hoping that the wax will catch any air that the cork doesn't right. catch and seal the bottle. But which is the, and not get into the wine. Which is the origin <clears throat> of the capsule. Right. And early corkscrews, if you look at them, you'll be you'll be interested to see a lot of the early corkscrews have the piece of wood with the metal coming down. Out one end of the handle is a sort of a looks like a tiny shaving brush, and on the other end of the handle is a very short curved knife. You know what those are for? For, Rick? for picking out the the wax. Yeah, the knife was to cut the, through the wax of the capsule. The brush, and I think this is a very elegant touch, was to brush off the top of the bottle uh, and brush the yeah. wax off. And then you'd open the bottle, and you know what any good bartender did with that corkscrew when he was done using it? 
You can go into old pubs in Britain, old bars in France, and you will see behind the bar there is a big beam overhead, and it looked like woodpeckers have chewed it to pieces because these guys, the way they stored the cork puller, so they always knew where it was. Just threw it up over there? They just took that short little hook blade, ah. and they just whunk, whack it right into the, and it would stick up there in the beam until they needed it the next time. Ah, I like that. I'm going to start doing that at my house. Yeah, I'm sure your wife will appreciate yeah, put that. put screw right into the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah it's, uh, there you go. That's, uh, that's uh, So okay. that was the beginning of the capsule, yeah. which, of course, now they're made with tin or other things. But, yeah. 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 Well, you know. Where I, do we go from there? I, I want to complain a little bit. Oh, <laughs> there's news. Just a little Wait, bit. Rick's going to whine about wine? Well, I'm going to whine about wine whiners. <laughs> okay. So the people who whine in the wine world about wine. Well, there's been a lot of whining lately about <laughs> um in fact, in fact there was just uh, we 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 talked about this oh a few shows ago uh-huh. about a couple of psalms were saying how they really hated how the millennials those darn kids oh, those darn customers were were buying wine not for the reasons that the psalms wanted them to buy it. But oh. they but they liked the story and the label and yeah, yeah, things yeah, were yeah, intriguing yeah. and there okay, was a, a major wine writer had done one just recently and I thought that was interesting because I just saw a, a Gallo's annual consumer study came out. And, and, said, and just so, just to be really clear here, Gallo is the largest winery in the world, and they know probably more about wine consumers than anybody on the planet. Yes, and and these this they are they, right. They know why people buy wine, and they said millennials are four times as likely to buy wine by the label than boomers. Yep. And they also look for personality and originality. These are all the things that those Church of Wine people were unhappy that people were buying the wine for personality. Right. Because they right. didn't buy it for the silky tannins that they so or, can or you the think of any other product that, that millennials are buying hand over fist on the basis of originality and personality? Oh, everything and beer and yeah, technology. And so, if you think that this is the wrong thing, and you're in the wine business, you're quickly going to find yourself like Miller and Budweiser instead of like the microbreweries because. That's where all the action is in beer these days. Yeah, and all are... the big boys are buying small breweries because they understand what people want. Beverage is a personal choice. It should be an expression of your personality. It should be fun. If you want to drink something called two fat hens, well, go drink two fat hens. Absolutely right. You know, they, and and the the winers, the wine winers, sound the wine like winers. they sound like uh, they sound like some the the, the old stagecoach driver shaking his hand at the, as the. Iron horse went <laughs> roaring past. You know. They don't appreciate me oh, anymore. Yes. Curse you all. <laughs> all righty. You are listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. We hope that you appreciate us, even if we may be whiners. And, Rick sounds kind of whiny today, I oh, think. Yes. I was whining about the whiners. Okay. And uh, as we are going back to our mailbag. And by the way, if you'd like to ask us a question, we'll give you credit only if you want it. Go to rickpaulwine.com. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes with just a little click. All right. This question is from James in Sausalito. He might have read that previous story I was just whining about because he says, I subscribe to wine magazines and kind of feel that I know at least a little about wine. Good. I read a story in Major Newspaper Name Removed So We Don't Get Sued about the 10 best cabs to look for this year. I recognize two of them. Yep. Do they do that just to show me how cool they are or how dumb I am? Both. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a tough problem because, of course, on the one hand, you've written these You've you've done stories like this, haven't you, Rick? Yes, I try to make people feel dumb. And it's not hard when they read my stuff. I they feel smart. They feel because, smart. Yes, they, it's they, they think superior. I know more than this clown. This I guy, must be a genius. This guy can't spell. That's what they'd say. <laughs> so, what is your criteria when you decide? Okay, Rick, what are your ten wines of the year? What's your criteria for that? Well, it is always something about them being available. 
Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I'm not. There's there's billions almost of wines on the planet. 125,000 different wines in the U.S. market. In the U.S. market, right? Yeah. And so that's just the U.S. That's market. That's just the right? U.S. market. And then we you know multiply that by yeah. the rest of the world. And you know, so I'm not going to go somewhere that obscure to show how intelligent I am or how uh, well versed I am in the wine world. I want people to be able to enjoy. I'm writing stories so they'll go out and buy a wine, a bottle of wine, and enjoy it. Right. So I want them to right. find things that they want to be now. able to find it. Does it need to be a seven bo- seven ninety nine bottle of wine? Well, no. But I want them to, to be wines that it, even if they haven't heard of all of them, that they should know where to find them. They should right. be able to find them. Well, now these days, particularly if you're writing in California, just about anybody can call up the winery and say, "Hey, send me a couple bottles. I heard this is good." But by the same token, I think, and it's the same thing with movie reviewers and television critics, and I was one yeah. of those too. Yeah, is yeah. that that you also need to understand that. People enjoy reading about the things they know, too. They want them ranked. That doesn't mean that you pander to them, but they want to know the things that they know that fit in. And what often so often happens with so many wine writers is they feel like they are selling out if they actually include the names of wines that That are are currently available. They're currently available and the people are popular. Yeah, it is funny because rarely do you see a movie critic say, I just saw a great movie in the original Urdu in India. Yeah. It'll never come to the States, but it's the yeah. best movie. You've got to go track this down well, they somehow. they will say that, but it won't be. They'll say, and then this is another thing. You know, they yeah. but they will review, you know, they'll say, this is, this is great, and I saw this weird movie, but here's my top ten. Right. Because the top right. ten should be movies that right. people but can get But in wine, to. somehow there is this sense of it, it's almost that story if, you know, what, the, what they used to say about the stock market is when the people get smart, the smart get out. When a wine gets popular, then the people who write about wine immediately decide there must be something wrong with it. Because if the wine that is popular is also the wine that the critics really like, why do we need critics? Well, then there's that. And they, they, this, the, well, then they've just people, written themselves out of a job. Some people might argue that. I don't think that. I don't <laughs> think that there is that. I don't think that it is that rational. No, it's. Not. I think it's much more emotional. But I just need to be cool by not liking the cool thing. Well, I don't even know if it's. I mean, not the popular liking. thing. I mean, I think it's also. I need to be cool because I need to show people what I've had that they haven't had. That's how I demonstrate that I really know wine. But interestingly enough, if you look back over the most influential wine writers in America, and I'm going to even I'm, I will include Robert Parker oh, in yeah. this, Gerald Asher, uh, Hugh Johnson, uh, Frank Pryle. They wrote not so much about those rare, weird things that nobody could take. They actually wrote a a much more, um, let's say, in-depth article about wines that a lot of people knew a lot about but may not have understood as completely as they did Uh, after they read Gerald Asher, Frank Pryle, etc. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. And that's and yeah, so you uh, James, it's 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 not it's not you, it's them. <laughs> it's, it's, it's totally them. Yeah, what James should do is listen to us. Right. Because we will never do that. Right. We we don't really have a top 10 list. <laughs> we so don't. You're totally safe with us, James. <laughs> All right. This, this is from Julia in Southern California and she says she doesn't want to be more specific about where she lives because she doesn't want to shame her husband too much. <laughs> so here's, here's her question. Okay. My husband's a good guy, but he has a cheap streak. He says... Where, he, where, 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 who is this from? This is from Julia somewhere in Southern California. Not in Sacramento? No. Okay. Just no. checking. Are you, <laughs> you thinking, well, Deborah in, in Sacramento, Deborah in Sacramento thinking, was yeah, saying, my husband's possible. a pretty decent guy, well, but he's got a cheap streak. Well, I don't know if Actually, my the wife could part. say that yeah, about me, but, too. So. Um, 
anyway, back to Julia's question. Yeah. He says we don't have to tip. We don't. Have, we, he says we don't have to tip on the wine. Mm. He also says we're getting ripped off when we buy wine by the glass. He might be a little bit right about the glass of wine, but both of those sound pretty cheap skatey to me. Well, um, he clearly has never worked in a restaurant. Clearly. Clearly, because we all know that the people who work in a restaurant gets paid peanuts. Right. And the only way they make a living is by tips. And if your reason for going to a restaurant is to get the best possible meal you can get for the lowest possible price, you shouldn't be going to a restaurant. Um, the whole point of a restaurant is it's more than just food, it's service, it's interaction, and you pay for that. And the way you pay for that is you tip the server. And servers live and die on this. And servers are not generally people who have first jobs and are doing waiting tables because they love the thrill and have a passion <laughs> right. for it. Yeah. These are people who desperately need the money they make there to pay for their kids' shoes and put food on the table, and you tip them. Yeah, easily enough. And you just say, if you can't afford the tip, then don't get the really expensive wine. You know, right. I, I just did a series of stories. Actually, I, I did one here working for Capital Public Radio where we, we talked about tipping, and, and but yep. I also wrote one uh, a little more recently for a magazine about the f- psychology of tipping. And I talked to yes. some of these guys at places like Cornell and Michigan State where they have business schools that have mm-hmm. done mm-hmm. lots of studies on this. Right. And one of the things that they found was that the larger the tip, the lower the percentage tip. So one uh-huh. like one hint they had to a server, if you're a server out there, here's some advice. Try to get your table to, to get split checks. Uh, yeah, because they'll t- they'll tip a higher percentage because each person will kick in a little more. Yeah, yeah and yeah, yeah. and but and and they say that it is is uh, one of the professors was a really good guy and he was telling me he didn't want to shame the guy he was talking about but was a friend of his who was very wealthy and he would treat everybody and buy very expensive bottles of wine but he would never tip on the wine. Right. And, yeah. And now the other question she asks is, are are wines by the glass a ripoff? And they're the, more expensive, but they're not a ripoff. Right. They are more expensive. Yes. If you bought five glasses of wine, which is how many glasses you get out of a bottle, you would pay more than if you bought a single bottle. Absolutely true. Is that a ripoff? Do you want the whole bottle? My wife and I almost always order wines by the glass rather than bottles of wine. A, because we know we're not going to finish the bottle. B, because we want to taste different things. And the other part of that equation, the sense that a restaurant is out to rip you off— the other part that you're not really addressing in that is when you when they open a bottle of wine and pour a glass, every once in a while you're going to have a bottle that doesn't get ordered for a couple of days. They have to pour that out. Yeah. So the restaurants do lose a little money on unpoured wines and buy-the-glass programs. But you're taking the equation from the wrong point of view. The question is what do you want to do and what's going to make your evening special? And if you're job in going to the restaurant is to see how you can talk the restaurant into giving you a discount, you should go to a place that has a smorgasbord. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and then you'll get a yeah. real deal on your meal. The um the yeah, the, the other part, I mean, it is it's sort of the bargain. You know, you, you know it's like everything. You pay for everything. Yeah. You know, and you pay what things are worth, worth. And um and that is absolutely legitimate that the wines by the glass would cost a bit more. Yep. But it, it allows you a couple of things. As you said, um, it uh, it allows you to have choice. You can have a couple of glasses so you have different wines. You don't meal. have to explain it allows to people my how wife, many bottles you It has, allows my wife to have a glass of wine while I'm drinking the, the bottle. The, the rest of the bottle. Yeah, I'm drinking the whole bottle and then she gets a glass. <laughs> but it also it allows for a lot of things. And, and so that is – he's right it's more expensive, but it is, he, it is not a ripoff. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. He, he does seem Actually, happy. he seems to think that restaurants are a ripoff. He yeah. seems to have this 
resistance to paying restaurants as if what restaurants make all their money on is the food. Yeah, and the and margin's really small. Everybody knows that restaurants make no money on the yeah. food. And, you know, you got to remember about, you know, restaurants is you're going there. They are they have a crews of people who wash the dishes, wash the tablecloth, sweep the place, vacuum, serve you, bring your water, Again, all that stuff. if you want the best as deal well for your cook. money, the best deal for your money, go to a smorgasbord. But it, if you want where, to, where they don't even bother washing the dishes. They <laughs> now they'll sue us. Here went another sponsorship I didn't name, opportunity. I didn't name a smorgasbord. Right off All the, the ones table. who we know, they're fine. But yes, all right. All right. Okay, what wait, other questions? Wait, we got, got one more from Kerry in Sebastopol. Cool, that's wine country. It is indeed. I saw a story about how wineries were using technology to stop people from counterfeiting wine. What do they mean by that? Yeah, there are a couple of different things they do, but one of the cool things is they actually embed a little chip. Well, in let's tell her what counterfeiting wine is. It sounds like, uh, like— Well, you should know a lot about this, right? That's, that's true. What you do is you take your wine and you get a printing press. and um, no, Yeah, it's, expensive bottles of wine are really expensive, and so it is possible for people to go out and either photocopy labels or even refill bottles that have been emptied. You put a new capsule on it, you put a new cork in it, and you pretend that what's in there is what was originally in there, and, of course— it's not. And there's two markets where that happens a lot. And, I mean, it's sort of the high-end auction market where people right. are in their old ancient wines, Thomas Jefferson wines. We, right. We've talked about this. Right. But it's also places like China where there were some some uh, nefarious non-importers but people and sort of, sort of developing some de- other developing countries where they are pretending to have more expensive wine than they do. Right. Um, and so the wineries are putting in things like chips that would – or, or um, holograms that right, and that they'll will... they'll either be part of the label, they'll be part of the capsule, so that in fact you can run it through a scanner, and the bottle will actually identify itself to the to the expert, and you can identify right away. This couldn't be this couldn't be the 1979 Chateau Lafitte because that bottle had a special. Yep. Yeah. 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 So that that's what that is. Um, it's not gangs that are uh, making fake wine and taking it to the Seven Eleven. No, but I did love the story recently that the FBI had confiscated a bunch of false wine and was then selling, in an attempt to um, to Recoup reimburse the reimburse the creditors. They had then decided to sell the collection. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why and they not? swear that they'd identified the false bottles and only good bottles were in the part they yeah, were auctioning I'm, I'm off. sure they got rid of them really easily, too. <laughs> All right. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. When we come right back, we are going to have a food pairing for you. Stay with us. listening to Bottle Talk with Rick Paul, and our food pairing is kind of a difficult one. Teriyaki salmon. Excuse me? <laughs> uh, that was, uh, yes, no, that was not a sneeze. Okay. Uh, teriyaki salmon. Teriyaki salmon. Does it have to be salmon, or could it be chicken? It could be chicken or beef, too. Same yeah. thing, because the problem with teriyaki is it is sweet mm-hmm. as well as tart. Yeah, yes. And one of the things you it's discover— It's the magic of teriyaki. Not, one not of the, the things problem. you discover is if you drink a dry red wine with your teriyaki— the sweetness in the teriyaki will make the dry red wine seem pretty much like lemon juice. Yeah, and remember we say this all the time that 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 even even what we would consider gentle wines have um, acid in them, and then, right. so sugar. And it's the brush your teeth, drink your orange juice thing where you notice. So I'm right? going to suggest that with the teriyaki, you go with something that is slightly sweet on its own as well to balance it out. And I go for a beautiful German Riesling with teriyaki chicken, and I'm ready for lunch. Yeah, that's not bad. I was going to go with uh, something in that ballpark myself, which was like a, a, a slightly sweet Gewürztraminer. Uh-huh. Yep. I like that. I like yep. the, the slightly fruity notes, the, the sorts of things. Yep. Although I will say this. 
I will say this. Sometimes you get teriyaki sauces that are salty, more salty than anything else. And salt is one of those things that, that kills tannin. It, it well, it so kills tannin. Yeah, and you know the there's this sort of thing. There's a joke that if your wine's not going well with your food, put some salt on your food. Right. And the, and they'll blend a little better. The acid right. and salt. I thought you were going to say you smack the wine around yeah, a little uh, bit. Well, there's that too. Um, but but the <laughs> and so if it's a little if it's a saltier, you can go with a a, 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 a drier wine yes. of some sorts. Yep. You know, but but yep. you don't want it to be really big 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 gigantic. tannins. Yeah. No. No. Nope. Yeah, Ugly combination there. Ugly combination. We've been called that. Yes. <laughs> Many times. And, I'm the salt. You're the tannin. I was going to say. Wine helps when you're dealing with either one of us. <laughs> All right, that is it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Bessie. Thank you, Matt. And thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question, uh, we'll answer on the show. You go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one Rick and Paul Wine. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's don't sneeze in anyone's wine glass when you've got the flu. That's the lesson for today? I, I had nothing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially with us, when we don't have the flu. <laughs>